Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. Let me get my buttons pushed here. Pretty soon I'll have a producer working behind the scenes, so I don't have to push the buttons anymore. Somebody else can push my buttons. Anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. This is our Friday. Woohoo! Made it through another week of shows and crappy headphones, which we're replacing. But anyway, uh, Monday I should have a new headphone wire for this. I'm hoping that's what it is for these Bose headphones. If not, I have a new, brand new set of headphones coming Wednesday. Anyway, welcome to the show. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, Near-death experience. Everybody's interested with near-death experiences. I know I am. I know my father had one when he was in the hospital he told us about. So I'm very interested in them. Uh, you can find us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. All of our video stuff is there in the archives. You just have to click at the top where it says archives. And get in there. Also, what's there is our archival stuff from Blog Talk when we were on Blog Talk Radio. I've got about two years worth on there now. So you guys can check all those out from way back when, when I was just starting out doing this stuff. And I was literally online. And I was one of the first paranormal shows to go out and do a podcast. There were only like six of us. That was one of the first ones. So that's something to look at to see how I, how I handled myself back then. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts paranormal investigation team based out of sacramento we're 35 strong up and down the state of california but we also have members and kind of like co-groups in oregon washington nevada and hawaii so you check us out right there at californiahaunts.org uh there's not a lot of updates there because yahoo is no longer maintaining websites allowing you to maintain websites so i'm switching it to the to the website carrier that that's got the radio show so we're in the process of moving that around. If you're watching from YouTube tonight, please subscribe. You will see a little ghost down in the right-hand corner with a hat on, a Sherlock Holmes hat on and a magnifying glass. Just click on him. You can subscribe. We've got more than 200 videos sitting out there, all for the show. So almost every topic, paranormal topic you can think of and every other kind of topic you can think of, whether it's spousal abuse or anything like that, it's there. Trust me. You just got to go through all that stuff. <laughs> Even I have to go through all that stuff sometimes to see what I have. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming. Uh, I've got a ticker running at the bottom. We are a nonprofit. So if you can find it in your heart to help us keep the show on and keep these guests coming in, I'd really appreciate it. That would be a paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, uh, you can do Venmo and just type in California Haunts. But that would be great, you know, because we're looking for subscribers and we're looking to keep this thing going on the air. I love doing this. All everything you see here comes out of my pocket. All right, so the cameras, you know, everything, including the paranormal equipment for the team. Also, we are going to be doing a ghost hunt. I call them ghost tours, a public ghost hunt. Uh, it'll be a, it'll be in a cemetery. I'm pretty, I'm pretty well convinced. Uh, on March Saturday, March 26th, we have two spots open. We had 10 open. We're down to two. So if you're interested in participating in that, visit CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and get up to the top and go to that last category. Click on it. It'll drop down to special events, and you can get in from there okay anyway tonight's guest now now we're swinging in i see her in the green room tonight's guest um 
I'm going to let her tell the story because it's easier if she does. Rose Thornton, Rosemary Thornton, because her story is unique in that she had an NDE, but she was given a gift out. She was, she was, she was technically given a gift during that NDE. And so I'm going to let her tell you the story. Okay. All right, let's do this. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you just fine. Good, good, good. Welcome to so, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So tell me about you. Meh. I wrote books on old houses. It was fun. It was a living. Actually, um, I wrote books on old houses. They did pretty well. Uh, I had a run on PBS History Detectives, which was an awful lot of fun. Uh, from there, uh, I had I got I had a really good time. Anyway, all in all, I've written nine books. The book that I've just come out with is actually book number ten. And it's a quite a departure from architectural history, which has been my genre. And the new book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And it's the story of what I experienced. And what you said is absolutely right. Uh, what I experienced in heaven was quite a gift. It was a huge gift. And the subtitle, How Dying Saved My Life, is actually not just a cute title, but true. Um, and my website I'd like to mention is temporarydeath.com. I don't like, I'm not, I'm, I'm a wordsmith. I've been a writer for 35 plus years mm -hmm. and words matter. And, uh, the term near death has always bothered me a little bit. Near death is what happens if you're on an airplane and it's plunging toward <laughs> land. And at the last minute, the pilot does something wonderful. He pulls and up. Yeah. He pulls up. You have had a near death experience. All right. But, I died, medical evidence that I died, uh, actually that my heart stopped, and I was dead more than uh, 10 minutes, which is pretty remarkable. The thing wow. is I died, I died from bleeding to death. And the thing about that that's remarkable, when you bleed to death, they can't even do CPR. You know, the idea is to keep the brain for perfused with oxygen. Right. But if they can't do CPR and to come back after more than 10 minutes, it's pretty remarkable in and of itself. So, and, and at the time, I was in my late 50s. Anyway, it started, uh, you know, it's so funny. My backstory to me is kind of important, but all anybody wants to know is what's it like to die. <laughs> but, I want to hear your backstory. I want to hear all that. See, we want to know everything. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. Just like you are. I want to know it all. Okay. Well, it started, uh, I don't know. I got married in my early 40s, thought I'd found the love of my life. Actually, I guess I was mid-40s. Thought I'd found the love of my life, and uh, after 10 years of marriage, he came home for lunch one day and ended his life with a gun at our home. And I, being a sensitive writer type, I went into a pretty hard downward spiral pretty quickly. And uh, I ended up at one point actually uh, living out of my car briefly. I mean, I really had a nervous break. We used to let people have nervous breakdowns, you know. Right. And now there's an expectation that, you know, buck up, snap out of it. And, I mean, that experience, what I went through after his death was pretty intense. I mean, I had been a writer. He was a successful professional. Mm -hmm. We had a pretty nice life. And to go from that to the mess. And, you know, we had um, we had important friends. You know, we we just had a nice life. And after his death, those friends scattered pretty quickly. What I learned was the people who came into the fray were the people who knew about tragedy and trauma. 
And they had been through tragedy and trauma, and they knew how to be a comfort in tragedy and trauma. And these weren't the, how can I say, the upper tier of society that had been in our circle. These were the folks that, you know, were trying to figure out how to pay the electric bill every month. Mm -hmm. And yet they gave me their time, their love, their compassion. I mean, one woman, and I talk about this in my book, her name was Tracy. She, uh, she took me into her home for four months because she found out I was sleeping in the car. Wow. And she told me, she said, we're not doing that, Rosemary. You know, I mean, think, I think anyone can figure out when you end up from going in a house on a lake to sleeping out of your car, you're in a pretty fast, you're starting to circle the drain. Sure. Especially for a woman of my age. And I stopped eating, lost a tremendous amount of weight. It's so funny. I was pretty bedraggled. I had to be reminded to take a shower from time to time. I looked pretty rough. And uh, people would say, oh, you're so thin. <laughs> you look so great. <laughs> I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, um, <coughs> pardon me. Those were, tar those were hard times. Anyway, my friend Tracy had been on the periphery of my life. I'd met her because she was a real estate agent. Mm -hmm. And I had met her through selling a friend's house. But, um, and we became friends, but I mean, I saw her two, three times a year. Well, after this, she literally, she said when word came over the radio that my husband had died by suicide, that she had to pull off the road and sob. And she said the very first thing she remembers thinking is we're going to lose Rosemary. Because people knew how much I loved him, how much mm -hmm. I relied upon him, and how horrible this was. You know, uh, suicide really is a death like no other. And I can't emphasize that enough. You, we become, I'll try not to go too far down this bunny trail, but suicide prevention is one of my hot buttons. You know, oh, there must have been signs. He was depressed. You, you, you must have known. No, 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 no. When a 63-year-old man does this, I mean, maybe that's true for kids. I don't know. I can't speak to that. I'm guessing. I don't know. But when it comes to a grown man, or a grown adult, I should say, and they decide to do this, uh, there's no signs. But anyway, uh, suicide widows, as we're known, Suicide survivors, I guess, is the more apt term. Uh, somebody who loses a child or a spouse to suicide is 12 to 48 times more likely to end their own life. So there we have a known risk group. We know people, and, and I know I'm in a group on social media called Suicide Survivors, and already in that group we've had three people end their own life after losing someone to suicide. Mm. So we have this known and identified risk group, and what do we do? We treat them like lepers. We treat them like outcasts. The reason my friend took me in was she saw not only was I circling the drain, but nobody was, I mean, I had another friend mentioned in my book multiple times. Another friend stepped in and helped too. But these two people and others, but they were the ones that really stopped me from turning into a mess. I mean, they were the ones that saved me. And, you know, something, something my friend that took me into her home used to say, and she said it a lot. Actually, my brain was so fried. I mean, I have written nine books on architectural history. It takes a lot of work to write a book on anything historical related. Absolutely. And I used to read uh, a book a day. I mean, like some dull, dry history book, trying to find, okay, is there a reference to my topic here? And then I would mark it so that I could come back to it and organize. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of work to write a book. So I always thought of myself as not only a fast reader, was something of a smart cookie. I had a very good memory, a really exceptionally good memory. And I went from that to after this happened, I had to have somebody take care of me. I mean, one example is, um, well, actually, I liken the trauma, severe trauma that I, I experienced is more like a stroke victim. 
I lost fine motor skills. I lost gross motor skills. I actually had somebody drive my car for a while. I couldn't even drive. And then I noticed if I go back to the journals from that time period, my hand looks like my handwriting looks like that of a 95 year old woman. Hmm. And then the, the, I guess really the example I use most frequently, uh, I was trying to bake a cake out of a box mix and it was like eggs and water and oil. And I literally handed that box off to a friend. I mean, I was my, at this point I have a friend living with me, taking care of me in, in a rental house. I handed it off to my friend and said, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what it's saying. I mean, I could read the words, but I couldn't comprehend what the heck it was saying. Mm-hmm. And about two years into this, I had to reteach myself how to read. I started with a juvenile book. And I remember the night I did this, I figured, you know what? You've got to learn to read. I know this is hard. I know it hurts, but you've got to, got to, got to learn to read. So uh, I started with a, a juvenile book, like a book for adolescents. And I remember I read that front page probably 25 times. And after I read it, I thought, okay, it's a story about a dog and a wagon. <laughs> and then I would go to the second page. Um, so I that was pretty messed up. So two and a half years went this way. And then about two years into this, I was living in a home by myself. I asked my dear friend, you know, I said, listen, I, I'm so grateful you've been taking care of me, but I think I'm okay now. But the fact is I had pretty severe suicidal ideation myself. I just wanted to be dead. <laughs> it's kind of funny, sort of maybe now. I had three prayers I uttered every night, which were, God, either heal me or let me die. Mm-hmm. Spare me the life of you. And three, I had severe decision fatigue to the point that I went online and I bought myself, I think it was 10 white polo shirts and four pairs of jeans. So in the morning, all I had to do was open my closet. I couldn't even make a choice about colors. Open my closet, grab a white polo shirt, a pair of jeans, and I was done. That decision was out of the way. And I remember somebody sat me down with a friend of a friend who was a financial advisor. And she said, where do you see yourself in two years? And very quickly, I responded, I'll be dead. And she was pretty angry. She said, you know, that's not going to help. <laughs> but I was very serious. I could not imagine surviving a trauma of this magnitude. I mean, literally could not imagine. So uh, about two and a half years out, and I was still thinking about killing myself every every day. Uh, I mean, I was really struggling. And I knew, I knew, I mean, I had psychiatric care, I had mental health care, and I knew, man, you say a word about that to anybody, and they will put you on a psych ward. Mm-hmm. So I kept it to myself. And I had a very, very detailed plan. I had the place. I had the means. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And when the desire to do that overwhelmed me, I would tell myself, wait 24 hours. If you still feel this way, do it. You know. Hmm. And you know, people are like, oh, it's a temporary. What is it? It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. No, it's not. If you put weights on somebody's shoulder, there's a point at which their knees buckle. It doesn't matter how strong they are. It doesn't matter how good their knees are. It doesn't matter what shape they're in. There is a point at which we all buckle from the pain. So at 29 months, I was, I'd been having some very odd, disturbing physical problems. At 29 months, I went to see a gynecologist. I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. I was sent to a oncologist who confirmed it. After exam said, it's obvious that this is at least stage two based on its spread to other areas. And I was just beside myself. I, you know, and I, I remember leaving his office and saying, God, I was pretty clear on this. I said, let me die. I didn't say drag it out. You know, let me go. Let me go. And the thing about the prayer of no life review, my husband had used a gun. And the trauma of that is hard to even address. And what 
launched my career as an architectural historian is I have a phenomenal memory for images. And those that memory worked against me. So I had a nightmare pretty much every night of what I saw. And, and most of the nightmares, I was, I got to him just as he pulled the trigger. And the rest of the nightmares, I was too late. So that thing in No Life Reviews, I saw this. I saw this in my sleep. I saw this. I saw how I broke down. I didn't want to see that again. And then my third prayer, there were lots of decisions to make after he did this. And I was not up to making any of them. And, you know, one of the things that's very important to me, if I was queen of the world, and hopefully it won't be long now, but if I was, I would create an advocacy group for suicide survivors such as myself. I was questioned by the cops two hours after my husband did this. Sure you were. What was the nature of your argument with him? What were you? Was this common for you to argue? Was he upset? And I remember saying to the cop, and this was by phone because I was still on an airplane trying to get back home. I had been in Boston when this occurred. And I said to the policeman, I'm pretty proud of myself, actually. I said to the policeman, uh, this is not an appropriate time. You know, if these questions are pressing, call me tomorrow. But this mm -hmm. is not an appropriate time. And they, you know, I didn't hear back from them. But that's, anyway, an advocacy group. You know, in the 70s, when a woman was sexually assaulted, like walking home from a bar or something, she was asked, well, what were you doing wearing a leather miniskirt? Why did why you have those heels on? Why were you at a bar? Why were you on the street at one in the morning? What are you mm -hmm. doing out there? I understand you, you let the man buy you a drink. I mean, we, we talk about victim blaming, and we're still doing that today with suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, these women who lose somebody this way, they don't need to be drilled into by police. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand that, you know, there can be some fishy business, but I had a very dear friend of mine who was sexually assaulted, and the cops had an advocacy person there in the room with us helping her. And that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Secondly, so many women like me, I, I mean, this wasn't my case, but many women, they don't have the means after their husband's dead. And it takes four to six to eight weeks for um, government care to kick in, government financial assistance to kick in. So I think there needs to be some way that we can just say, here's some money. Here's some money so you can buy milk for the babies, you know, buy some baby food. We're not doing any of that. This country, I mean, I'm talking about USA, you really need to get a, a grip on that. So anyway, I digress. Too easy to do. So I'm diagnosed with cervical cancer, and I'm really thinking, geez, God, you know, 29 months on the rack. Can we take Rosemary off now? You know, can this be done? And you know, one of the very early prayers I had prayed, uh, I always ask people to read me the Bible after his death because it was the only way I found comfort. And so one of the Bible verses somebody read to me was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it said simply, God will show you a way out. So I had a cervical biopsy done, and I'm in the recovery room. And I am not a person who does doctors. I had relied my whole life on spiritual healing. I mean, literally my whole life. And it had, you know, if the thing with my husband hadn't happened, I'm sure that, I, you know, the thing is we all break down. When you break down to that extent emotionally, mentally, you're going to break down physically. It happens. So they woke me up after this procedure, and I said, you know, off you go to the potty, and off you go home. And as I walked to the potty, I realized I was bleeding profusely. And I went back and I told the RN in attendance, I said, I'm bleeding a lot. And she said, oh, once you get home, you'll feel fine. You know, I've since learned that a gynecological hemorrhage like that is considered an emergency. And this was a, this was a big hospital. They screwed up. Two more times I told her I'm bleeding profusely. She said, off you go. You'll be fine. Just go home and lie down on your bed. You'll be fine. 
So I did. And I had a witness. I mean, this is legit. This is how it unfolded. Mm-hmm. Got home, realized I'm still bleeding to death. To death. Of course, my home had a very light-colored tan wall-to-wall carpet. And when you're hemorrhaging to death, the main thing is protecting that pretty carpet. Yeah. So in, so in a desperate bid to keep the carpet pretty, I went and stood in my shower. I had a nice shower, and I went and stood in the shower. And, I mean, I just saw the – I was making a mess, you know. So I uh, I thought, you know what? That Bible verse, God will show you a way out. I think this is it. All I have to do is sit down on this white tiled floor, and it won't be long. And once I sit down, I won't be able to get back up. I was already getting kind of bluesy. So I was pretty happy about that. I thought, you know, God answered my prayer. And what a surprise. So <laughs> I did I did not sit on the floor. I thought about the two people out in my living room, literally right on the other side of that bathroom wall. And I thought about one of them was the guy who had been my caretaker for two years. And they'd taken me to the hospital and waited for me and brought me back. And I thought, is this really fair to them that in 10 to 20 minutes they walk in here and find me splayed on the floor, a big ugly mess? I don't think so. And boy, it was really a tough decision because I thought, you know, I got an egg, I got an exit here. And I will not have done this to myself. I've got three children. I, 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 it's my get out of jail free card. So after some serious debate, I went ahead and decided to step out of that shower. And I put a bunch of towels around me so I wouldn't mess up that carpet. And I scurried out very quickly to my foyer, which had a hardwood floor. Pardon me. Had a hardwood floor. And I thought, well, at least it'll be easy to clean up. So, um, and then an ambulance was summoned. I was taken to a little ER in a small town near my home. And at the ER, they made a couple more boo-boos. And in that ER, I had an RN, another RN to my left, holding my hand while the doctor did her thing. And uh, that RN was about my age, and she was very motherly and very thoughtful and very sweet. And I grabbed her hand, and I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she said, oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. And she was very sincere and very very comforting, very authoritative. I mean, it's like she knew what was going on. She knew how to fix this. And that brought me a lot of peace. So then after the exam, they gave me a shot of Dilaudid. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long after that (laughs) that I popped out of my body like toast out of a toaster. (laughs) I was literally catapulted out of my body. I was in a deep, dreamless state at the time of my death. I was unconscious pretty quickly after that Dilaudid. And my friend who was in the room watching, because, again, my friend went with me to the the emergency room there. He said he glanced up at my blood pressure because they had me uh, they had one of those cuffs on me and uh, attached to a machine, kind of a blue thing on a stick. And uh, he said when he glanced up at it, the last blood pressure reading was 32 over 25. Wow. So, yeah, I was pretty much dead. And about at that point, I mean, he was getting ready to hop up and get some help. And he said, your eyes popped open. Your eyes popped, popped wide open. And you tried to sit up on the gurney. You raised your hand. You could not sit up, but you raised your shoulders up and raised your hands up. and Raised them right to, the, you know, as high as you could and wiggled your fingers, almost like I saw who had come for me and I was ready to go, ready to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I flopped back on the gurney. You know, there's a word for this. It's called, uh, terminal lucidity. Somebody shared that word with me, a phrase with me just the other day. So that's apparently very common at the end of life to have a surge of energy. Right. So meanwhile, I'm having the time of my life, literally, or the time of my afterlife. So I was catapulted out of the, my body, and it was very, very dramatic. And it was though 
there was a sinewy cord from the crown of my head to the bottom of my feet, and like somebody pulled back on an archer's bow and let loose, I went flying out of that body. And it was so jarring as to almost be disturbing, but it wasn't. It was fun. It was great. So I was floating further and further away in my body, but I was in blackness. You know, I, I did not see my body. I just knew that I was floating further and further away. And in this blackness, the first thing I said, and one, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool to die. But it's like going from 60 amps to 100,000 amps in a second. Here I had thought I had been so darn smart. But I realized what it means to really, to really have, I don't know, to have a, a glimpse of divine intelligence, actually. And my first thought was, my heart has stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? And I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then my next thought is, <laughs> I'm dying. And then, being the editor and writer, I said, actually, you're not dying, you're dead. Because, you know, when you're going on to your reward, the most important thing is correcting your tense. So, I thought that was pretty funny. You know? Yeah, that is funny. And I laughed out loud. And what was so cool was I heard myself laugh. One, I've lived alone for a long time. And I talked to myself. And I talked to myself in heaven. And this was not a mental thing. I was talking to myself just as I sound now. And I thought, I don't have breath sounds. I'm pretty sure I don't have vocal cords. And yet I'm not only producing sound, but my giggle is the same. My bizarre sense of humor is the same. And I even had a memory of my husband's suicide. And I remember thinking, I got out clean. You know, they'll say, well, she went to the doctor and she tried to get this fixed. I got away clean. And that was very comforting that I had not done to my children what he had done. They wouldn't have to live with that burden. So this went on and on for some time. And one of the early things that happened is I, floating away in this blackness, I felt the presence of this massive spiritual being to my left and above me. Well, not above me, but to my left and taller than me. <clears throat> and I remember feeling so comforted by that presence. And I turned to my left and I looked up. I thought that was pretty cool because I looked over my left shoulder. And I remember thinking, I have a human-esque form. I'm still substantially the same person I was when I before I died. It was all very intriguing to me. And I said to this wonderful presence beside me, I said, and who are you? <laughs> it's a party now, you know. I did say that. I said, and who are you? Literally with a lilt in my voice. And the answer was immediate. It was you, Rosemary. You are the image and likeness. I'm the original. I was like, wow, that's First Genesis 26 and 27. That's fantastic. You know, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. I had never, I had studied that Bible verse so many years, but I never really thought about what it means that there's an original. You know, the Bible says we're made in the image and likeness of God, and yes, but to know that there's an original was very, and I was like, oh man. And I remember thinking or saying, hey, you know what? That would have been good to know back there. <laughs> but that's gone. That's done. Cool. Sweet. And this experience just went on and on and on. And a lot of people talk about the love they experience. I felt peace as a overthinking every single thing slightly neurotic writer mm -hmm. i've always had anxiety and especially after my husband's suicide profound anxiety panic attacks a lot of guilt oh my gosh guilt 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 i mean you know i was reviewing every conversation i ever had with a man i thought why did i say that to him that's the reason he killed himself was that last conversation or that conversation the conversation we had in may 
the conversation we had over Christmas, on and on and on and on. But all that stuff was gone, and I was just happy and at peace. And I mean happy. You know, the word happy has kind of gotten a, a unpleasant connotation in my modern society because it is based on the word happenstance, that happiness can be very fleeting. But I remember feeling like a kid. I remember feeling uh, I hadn't been that ha happy since I was just a little girl. I was happy. More than joy, or maybe joy too, but anyway. One of the thoughts I had, I thought about Paul's Bible verse. Shoot, I guess I should know this citation. But he talks about the peace that passeth all understanding. I thought that's what Paul's talking about. And the Bible verse came to thought. This is the peace that passeth all understanding. And, you know, they think Paul had an out-of-body experience too. You know, he was stoned to death uh -huh. and taken outside of the... Uh, the walls, and then there's a verse, I should know the citations, but there's a verse where he says, I, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. They believe, scholars believe he's talking about himself, that, that he's talking about his own NDE, or temporary death. Sure. So it went on and on, and then uh, at some point, there was a lot to this experience. It's hard to condense it into a short time, but at some point I was no longer in that blackness, floating away, I was on my feet, and I was in a white room. And I thought, I don't know how I got here. You know, I don't remember transitioning. And I still, I think about it a lot. I still don't know. But, you know, I decided it's kind of like a spiritual amnesia. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm not supposed to know. And that's okay. I'm all right with that. So um, I was in that white room and I was on my feet. And I, remember, I wish I'd looked at my feet. I didn't. By the way, I've heard that from other people who've had this experience. They're like, why didn't I look at my hands? <laughs> but I was in this white room and there was like a light mist falling everywhere. And I saw a door in front of me, probably 15 to 20 feet. And the room, the walls and the ceiling and the floor were bright, 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 white. Luminescent, iridescent, perfect white. And I remember thinking, I see that door. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I'd been fascinated by NDEs. And kid is the wrong word. Raymond Moody's book, uh, Life After Life, I think that came out in 76. A little trade paperback. I read that thing so many times I memorized it. And that was one of the things that happened in this experience. While I was still floating away from my body, I asked the angels that were with me, I said, you know what? I've been here before. This blackness, this floating business, I've done this before. And the angels said, yeah, you know uh, that thing when your mom said you were kind of given up for dead briefly as an infant? Uh, you weren't really close to death. You kind of came over and we sent you back. <laughs> So I was like, you know, no wonder I've spent my whole life studying NDEs. This makes so much sense. And again, I said, good to know back there, but we're done. And then in this white room, I was on my feet. There was a white mist falling all around me. It was fantastic. And it wasn't just falling. These droplets were moving actively around me, almost like I was, well, they were moving. It was like they had life. And they were circling me and dancing and swirling. But I saw that door in front of me, and I knew what that door meant, having read about all those NDEs. I knew that door meant... When you get to that door and cross over, you're done, chief. You know, we're done. I can, I, I and, and I was like, I pretty much said, everybody out of my way, I'm doing the door. <laughs> I know what the door is. We don't need to talk about this. Out of my way. And I really, I remember one thought, very prevalent, very powerful thought, was I felt like I'd been granted early release for good behavior. Oh. After all I'd been through. I was not, and I don't know if it was my childhood NDE. I don't know if it's being somebody that, I don't know, is spiritually minded. But it was so clear to me that Earth was not my home. You know, there's an old African-American spiritual, the Earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Mm -hmm. I always felt that. So I was like, hey, I'm home. I'm home. So 
in this white room, I saw that door, and I knew exactly what the door meant. Couldn't wait. And I remember thinking, I don't know if, if I have feet or legs or what the deal is, but I know I can move with intention. So I decided to get to that door as fast as possible. And I approached the door and moved through this room. But as I was moving through this room, and again, it's maybe 15 to 20 feet. And again, it's bright, 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 bright. And this mist, while it seemed like a pea soup London fog, you could see through it. It was very interesting. And I tried to focus on one of the individual droplets that was moving around me. And I I remember saying to the angel, I I feel like I should be able to see an individual droplet, which to us sounds nuts. Can you imagine looking out the tomorrow morning in the fog and saying, hey, can I see one droplet? But what the angel said is your spiritual eyes have not acclimated to this new environment, but each droplet rep represents a particle of light. And what was explained to me is we do not go to heaven with a disease process imprinted on us or a belief that we have mental health issues. As a friend of mine said, leave your muddy boots at the door. So it's kind of akin to a spiritual car wash. <laughs> we get cleaned up real good. And somewhere in this right room, in this white room, it was made clear to me, and I think it must have been when I was close to the door, but it was made clear, and these were not words. This was, this was just, I don't know, an impression, that if I agreed to return, I would be healed of not just the cancer, but the crippling grief caused by a suicide. It was very... I was like, oh, cool, I'm not going back. And I paused at that door. I actually came to that door, and it was shut. I remember thinking that door needs to be open. I don't know why that door is shut. Because I knew what the, we all know what the door is, you know? Right. And uh, I put my right – actually, I didn't put my right hand up. I actually asked the angel, because now I was with just an, <laughs> a regular angel. <laughs> I asked the angel, um, is this the divine will for my life, that a medical mistake takes me out? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even get out the words, is this is – this, the divine will for my life. I just said, is this divine? <laughs> and before I could even finish the sentence, the angel said, no, it's not. But whatever you decide, you go with all of God's grace and mercy and blessings and care and love. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty sweet deal. I'll take that deal in a second. So I put my right hand up to push through that door. Pretty interested by the fact, right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Right-hand dominance, I guess, is one more thing that goes with us. And I had a vision, and it was a, more than a vision. It was like I had been given a sneak peek at that RN who had been so motherly and kind to me. And now she was sitting in a hospital supply room surrounded by linens and other supplies and such, sitting in the middle of the room on a metal stool, sobbing uncontrollably with her head in her hands. And this was more than a vision. This Again, this was like seeing it in 3D. It was like I had been granted permission to be a visitor. And several people have asked me, was this a concurrent event? And no, this was a potential future, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her on that stool, and uh, she said through tears, she said, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die, and I lost her. And I looked at her, and I thought, eh, she's about my age. She's been an RN a long time, probably. She knows what it means to lose patients. You know, she'll get over it. I need to go. I need to be gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my specific exact thought. And then I didn't just I didn't just see her crying. I felt that agonal pain and it I felt it right at the center of my chest, which is very curious again, but I felt it deep inside my being. But this time I felt the agonal grief, the deep emotional pain. And I recognized it as the pain I had known from the grief and loss of my own husband's death. So I remember thinking, if I can spare one woman that much pain, I have to go back. 
-hmm. talk about unhappy. <laughs> I mean, I, it wasn't happy. That's the wrong word. It was more a resignation because the thing is, and this is really important, when you're in that space and in that place, all you want to do is the will of God. Mm -hmm. And all I wanted to do was God's will. And that's why I asked, is this the divine will for my life? And I just can't stress that. You know, you know what's going on and you know you want to do what's right by God. Mm -hmm. So, boy, I put my right hand back to my side and I was back on that gurney in that little ER in a millisecond, if not sooner. There was no backwards whoosh. There was no going through a tunnel. I was just back. And it's pretty interesting when I was back on that gurney, the, uh, that same nurse was looking at me and she said, uh, what is your name? And she's right in my face. What is your name? And I said, Rosemary. She said, what year is it? And I said, 2018. And she said, where are you? And I said, a crummy excuse for ER. <laughs> but she kind of took umbrage at that <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> but I was pretty ticked. I, ticked is the wrong word. I was disappointed. And, you know, as soon as I was back in that room, I saw an angel in the upper left-hand corner of the room, just like a being of light and a little angel, not great big angel. And I looked at her, and I remember thinking to her, not speaking out loud, but you know what? Point of order. Robert's Rules of Order, we had a first. We did not have a, dis a second, and we certainly were not in the discussion phase. And I did say, do you know how much energy it took to die? I mean, this whole thing of bleeding to death took about, I think, six or seven hours. And she looked at me, she, this angel, looked at me and just smiled and said, hi. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Here you are. And from then, uh, I was... I woke up in a different room, which is pretty interesting. And my friend who had accompanied me said they called everybody, even the receptionist back there to work on me, which I thought was pretty cool. There are a lot of people in that little room. <laughs> so uh, it was very profound. And then, you know, part of what makes this experience so memorable and important to me is after I came back, I felt the angels so intensely for weeks. And I literally would get down on my knees after I was out of the hospital. I went to the hospital for four days. I literally get down on my knees at home and beg God, please don't close that portal. Let me see these angels come and go. Let me hear their words. Let me feel their presence. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was admitted to the hospital, I, I, I was taken to a trauma center, which was good. Taken by ambulance. And you know what's really funny is when I came back from this, that ER was very excited about having me out of their ER. <laughs> and the ambulance ride was really, really, really fast. I think everyone was afraid I was going to die on their watch. But yes, I was in the hospital. And the next morning, I got an older doctor, you know, the guy that's been around a while. He's about my age. Mm -hmm. These people nearing retirement, they're always about my age. <laughs> but I got the older doctor, and uh, he sat down, and he said, um, Rosemary, uh, you've had a heart attack. And I said, no, 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 not me. I walk. I ride my bike. I eat my fruits and veggies. Nah, wrong chart, doc. He said, no, 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 that's the right chart. And he said, last night, your heart went into refib, and then it stopped. <laughs> and he said they could tell by the elevated enzymes in my blood that my heart had, uh, that had heart attack. Mm -hmm. And they suspected significant damage to the muscle uh, because of the enzymes in the blood. They did a lot of blood work. You know, they come and take all these blood tests, you know, these little vials. And they're taking them, it seems like, every two hours. And I'm like, you know what? I have a feeling I need all the blood I can get. Can we stop removing it, please? But uh, the, that morning, the doctor said, actually, last night, Rosemary, you lost so much blood, your heart stopped. Which is very affirming, because that was the first thing I heard, was your heart has stopped. So I love hearing that. And, well, kind of, sort of, maybe. 
you know, documentation is everything. <laughs> right. And it is on the medical record. So then um, I said, hey, how much blood did I lose? And he said, more than 40%. I said, I want a number. And he said, after 40%, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so, so there's a, a lot of layers to it. I was in the room. Uh, my friend, I was in the hospital four days. My friends, the same two friends, well, lots of friends actually came to the hospital just to sit with me. Because, you know, when you're in a semi-conscious state, it's good to have an advocate in the hospital. Uh -huh. And make sure you're not taken down the hall for a kidney transplant or something, you know. <laughs> and I was in kind of a compromised state. And uh, my friends sometimes would have to go get a bite to eat or just take a break outside. I mean, you know, this is intense. And when they did, the angels came in. And the angels would and not come in. They just kind of showed up by the side of the bed. And they uh, they surrounded the bed and they sang. And they sang these beautiful songs glorifying God. And I told the angels through tears, because, again, it was like putting 100,000 amps through 60 amps of service. Mm -hmm. I told the angels, I said, I'm really good at houses. Melodies and lyrics, not so much. I'm not going to be able to remember, remember the melody or lyrics. And the angels said, this is not for you to remember. They said, this is for your, this is for your peace. This is for your joy. This is for your healing. And this is a thank you. We know how hard it is to glimpse heaven and come back here. We get it. And I would sob and I would just sob and sob. But when my friends reappeared, the angels would disappear. So the angels just stayed with me. And I know with everything that is within me that I will remember that angelic choir mm -hmm. for eternity, literally. And after this experience, I went back home and they, he wanted to discharge me to a convalescent center because it was an expectation that it would take uh, two to three months for the bone marrow to regenerate all the blood necessary. So my friends rallied and we were able to cobble together a schedule so I could go home, which I believe is very important. Mm -hmm. And then I had follow-up tests with the oncologist and I had to find, <laughs> I had to find another oncologist. Turns out when you go back to the oncologist and he says, don't forget your, Chemotherapy tutorial starts next Monday, and then we're going to start the chemo a little bit after that. And you say, oh, you know what? We won't be needing that. I was healed in heaven. It doesn't go too well. Yeah. <laughs> and he actually put mentally ill on my chart. You know, they do these client portal things on the chart now so you can log in and see what they say. And I, my friend, I couldn't even look at those medical records. They're very disturbing to me. But my friend logged into my account. I, I mean, I asked him to. And he said, You've been classified as mentally ill. So I had to find another oncologist, and she was about an hour plus from my home. Mm -hmm. Because I tried several, and this first oncologist had been a very prominent physician. And people did not want to go against his findings. Mm -hmm. But this second oncologist was just wonderful. And she would say, Rosemary, actually, you know, I'm like, I was healed in heaven, but I want to double check, make sure. <laughs> and uh, she would say, wait, you bled to death from a cervical biopsy? <laughs> I couldn't get her off that. I was like, hey, healed in heaven. That's the story. But she was pretty interested in that part. And at some point, I don't know the timing, but about two weeks out, I had to have more blood work done. Mainly, I guess, to determine if I was ready for the chemotherapy. Right. And the doctor reviewed the blood work and he said, there's a mistake on your blood work. And I said, what's the mistake? And they said, um, your blood work is textbook perfect. Every single number down to the decimal point is 
perfect. And I said, no, that's right. I'm back on my bike. I'm walking again, you know, slowly, but uh -huh. I'm, I'm having fun. And because you can tell when your red blood cell count is so catastrophically low, you get breathless walking 10 feet. You right. sound like a fish out of water. So I knew I was fine. <laughs> and they couldn't believe it. They didn't know what to do with that. Uh, so there, there were you know, just a lot of layers to this. But that was kind of my first understanding that something remarkable would happen. Oh, and about the heart damage, I had been taken for an echocardiogram and some other heart test mm -hmm. when I was still at the hospital. And while they're wheeling me down the hospital corridor in those fancy beds, I was saying, hey, uh, you know, we don't need to do this. I, I was told if I agreed to come back, everything would be just fine. We don't need to do this stuff. And they were like, we're going to do it just in case. And yet again and again, the doctor's report was, I really like that doctor a lot. He would come in every morning and chat with me. Every morning he'd say, Rosemary, you're a very lucky woman. Your heart is completely undamaged and healthy. You know, you have the heart of a young person. So, you know, just I, I for writing my book, I actually interviewed an ER nurse. And it was fascinating because I don't know much about medical stuff purposefully. I don't want to know. But I interviewed her, and I and she was one of the people who told me when somebody bleeds to death, you can't do CPR. And what she said was, we had a young man in, in our ER that bled to death. I, it was something internal. And she said, we did manage to resuscitate him successfully. She said, but he died again in 24 hours because the damage to his internal organs was catastrophic. I mean, think about that. You know, the well runs dry. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just your brain. You know, your fingers and toes. And one of the things I remember about the hospital experience was kind of cool. At 16 hours after I had bled to death, my feet were navy blue, almost black, from about mid-calf down. Wow. It did not look human. And I asked the same ER nurse, I said, you know, that sounds kind of bad. And I said, how long, how long can a limb go without oxygenation? And she said, well, how long was it for you? And I said, 16 hours. And she said, I believe what those angels told you. She says, that seems like an hour limit to have, you know, almost black legs and have no consequences. And I didn't. And I mean, there's so many things that could have been damaged. And, you know, what's really cool about this, I mean, it's hard to tell because there's a lot of pieces to this. Mm -hmm. When I came back, one of the things I noticed immediately is I had suffered from some high-frequency hearing loss, and it was restored. I could hear conversations down the corridor. I had arthritis in my wrist, perhaps from a lifetime of being a writer. I had a busted knee and a busted shoulder. It was all healed. It was all healed. It was all restored to perfection. And, you know, the other day my knee started hurting real bad. I got swollen up, you know, whatever. And I was like, hey, 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 this thing was healed. We're not doing this. And I was like, oh, crap, it was the right knee, not the left one. <laughs> so I was like, okay, angel. And, you know, I wonder a lot about the glasses. As my friend says in IT, you got rebooted by the creator. Why didn't? Why weren't the eyes healed? And what my friend said, and I just love this. He said, it's like Paul's thorn in the flesh. You know, it's a very obvious limitation. Mm -hmm. And he said, perhaps it's a way to keep you humble. And, it, you know, I, I can accept that. I can. Although I still pray for my eyes every day because I'm ready for that. I'm ready to be done with eyeglasses, too. And uh, this, so the second doctor took some time. She wanted to give me time to heal. She was pretty concerned. And yet every test they did. You know, they, they did a PET scan. They did a, oh, what's the other one? The CAT scan with resolution, without resolution. or I'm sorry, with dye, without dye, whatever it is. Every test came back. I don't see anything. 
And I, that's how I felt. I, I started thinking, you know what? And plus, I had had symptoms before this started, some pretty scary symptoms. And those symptoms had stopped as well. But she did do a second surgical biopsy. It was very thorough. took three hours. And uh, pulled, what it called, samples from lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of places. Had them checked while I was on the table. Had them double-checked while I was on the table and also sent them off to labs. Because she was very concerned. And... Mm-hmm. My friend tells me, uh, and this was about eight weeks after my dying, <laughs> and my friend tells me she, after the surgery, when I was in recovery, she came through the doors into the waiting room where he was, and she said, through tears, she said, my friend said, she threw her arms around my neck, and through tears she said, she's right, not one cell. And she said, in fact, her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect, were it not for all these medical tests, I would not believe there was ever any cancer present. So that's oh. a pretty dramatic healing. Wow. But the bigger healing was the healing of my soul. Shortly after I was home, I was alone after everyone had gone back. You know, a couple of weeks later, I was by myself. And I pulled a Bible off the shelf and it flopped open to the 23rd Psalm. And my eyes fell on the line, He restoreth my soul. And it was like it was highlighted with a very, very, very bright light. And I, I became very emotional and I cried and I thought, that's the healing. My soul was restored. And there had been so many reasons to hate myself for my husband's suicide. Mm-hmm. I asked myself so many times, why did he do this? I thought he loved me. And the angels told me, you're asking the wrong question. There is not a solution to that. And I even thought about Deuteronomy 2.3. You have circled the mountain long enough time to stop and go north. And there right. somebody else said, it's time to get off the merry-go-round. I had to ask new questions. And what the, the what they told me is stop saying that and say instead, I loved. And they say, when we love, it is like a river of light. Revelations talks about the river of light flowing from the throne of God. Mm-hmm. And it was like a river of light pouring through me. And I loved. And we don't have to have a human manifestation to love. We just need to be loved. What is it? Oh, my gosh. There's a great quote. Be love. Do love. Live love. Just be loved. And that was made very clear to me. And my other question was, where is he now? You know, what's happening with him? And the answer was, well, he's with us, which was very comforting. And then I asked, um, well, what's going on with him? You know, <laughs> I had I had the angels, you know, I had him as a resource. and I was going to ask him everything I've been wondering about. So I said, so, you know, what's what's going on with him? <laughs> Did he pay for the, the great amount of damage he inflicted? You know, so I had my specific right. question was, where is he? And the answer was none of your business. I was like, say what? <laughs> that seems rather curt. <laughs> for an angel that you know keeps company with the most high God. And then they said, um, we are to work out our own salvation. And your salvation is not, his salvation is not your concern. Your salvation is your concern. As the young people say, stay in your own lane. And it was explained to me that, I mean, I had, I had assumed the role of a spiritual guardian. He was an agnostic. Mm-hmm. I wanted very much for him to believe in God, believe in Jesus. And he did, it was a constant battle. I mean, he, he would laugh. And, and I would always say, you know, when this life ends, we go on. And he would always say, nope, nope, nope. When you die, it's lights out. This is just an organic chunk of human flesh, and it's over. And I have this image of him, you know, after he pulled that trigger. I have this image of him standing next to his own body and saying, oops. <laughs> like, she was right. We do go on. And uh, But the angels were very clear 
and their many, many answers lifted me out of the pit of despair. They had set me on a new path. But that thing that I was not responsible for his salvation was unbelievably mm-hmm. liberating. Absolutely. I cannot say how much that liberated me. And I really literally felt like the shackles were falling off. And, you know, I had been going around telling everybody, I, you know, it was, it's sad. But I went around telling everybody, oh, my husband shot himself. I can't get over it. I'm all screwed up in the head. My life is ruined. And I thought, why am I repeating that story? That's a sad, dark, bleak story. And it it was jarring how much I never wanted to tell that to anybody ever again. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing that came, I mean, it's not my story. And then the next thing came to me, it wasn't even his story. Mm-hmm. You know, when I died, it was like waking up from a bad dream. It, it literally was like a, a loving father shook me awake and said, hey, 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 I heard you screaming. I heard you crying. But it's over. It's over. It's just a bad dream. I tell you, when you when you die, or whatever language we wish to use there, the 59 years I was on this earth just seemed like the blink of an eye. It seems so, so unimportant, so minimal, so like, you know, you watch a good movie, you turn it off, you're like, oh, that's cute. I'll remember some parts of that. It's shocking how unimportant those 59 years suddenly seemed. So that was very liberating. And then as a consequence of this, I sold off all my worldly possessions. I sold all my stuff. I sold my furniture. I donated my research materials to a local college library. I sold my car. (laughs) I bought a slightly used Prius. See? And and then I sold my house. I listed my house and sold in two hours. Hopped in the car, drove a thousand miles west to start a new life. I live in the Midwest. It's very peaceful. I craved beauty. I realized the happiest time I'd ever known in my whole life was when I was floating away from that body. I, I thought, I don't need stuff. I just need peace. I, I want that peace. I want to have that peace forever. And I wanted to be around beauty. You know, people laugh at this, but it's true. I live in a part of Illinois where there's a lot of agriculture and farmland down south mm-hmm. in the state. And all I wanted to do was I would actually take my little car and I would sit at the edge of these vast farm fields. I mean, fields where you can see the sky probably 20 miles away. Mm-hmm. And I would watch the wind come across the corn and move those tassels, you know, amber waves of grain. It was right. very beautiful. So I spent a lot of hours just watching the wind <laughs> blow the corn tassels. It was great. So yeah, it completely changed my life in every way. You know, it's an incredible story. It really is. And I can attest, and I know I, I, I never personally have had an NDE or anything like that, but I was in a car accident when I was tw- just about to turn 21. And I thought the car was going to go over the cliff in North Canyon. And you'd think you would be absolutely petrified. But when I got to the point where I thought the car was going to go, oh, I'm a writer too, right? So all I could think of was, well, it's going to be a hell of a view. <laughs> and then I was calm. Yeah. It was just the most overwhelming, peaceful feeling I've ever felt in my life. Isn't that amazing? Nothing I can do to turn back. I mean, that's it, right? You're just going to go wherever you're going to go. Yes. So I can I can understand your peaceful feeling. You know, when you talk about feeling that 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 inner peace, that's what I felt was that inner peace. Yeah. Because it didn't matter whether I survived or not. I was just at that point where it was like, you know, that's it. So you know, when you talk yeah. about this, your your story is incredible. You know. Yeah, it certainly changed my life. And initially, I had zero interest. Sorry, I'm getting tangled up in my cords here. I had zero <laughs> interest in in writing a book. People harangued and harassed me about writing a book. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is way too personal. It's way too private. Mm-hmm. One, of, one, of, one of the things that happened, 
right after my husband's suicide, um, I lost the ability to eat or drink. Because it was a municipal autopsy, it took seven days to get his body released so we could have a funeral. So it was about day two, I guess. I could not eat or drink. My throat was all messed up. I mean, I was just in shock, really. But uh, my daughter took me to one of these urgent care places to be examined. And, you know, the doctor comes in. He sees me and my daughter. And he says, so, ladies, what's the problem today? <laughs> and my daughter says, her husband killed himself. And she can't eat or drink. Help, you know, what can you do to help us? The doctor, again, about my age, he literally reels back in horror. And he says, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Twice. <laughs> Mm -hmm. He says the same thing happened to my aunt Bertha and she was never right in the head again. <laughs> and so I, I, I remember I was on the examining table sitting up and I said, you know what? Skip the tranquilizers. Just give me some arsenic. I'm done. <laughs> I, you know, let's just put, let's put an ending to this pretty fast. And I shared that story. At one of the early talks, I gave a talk to a friendly group uh, near my hometown because story, you know, the word got out about this story. Right. So I gave this friendly talk, and a woman stood up and she said, please write a book. She said, because what that doctor did is not appropriate. And the fact is the medical community does not know how to deal with this level of trauma. They might know how to deal with schizophrenia and bipolar and borderline personality, but they don't know how to deal with this kind of trauma. Well, there's that pretty book. So that's a fact. Um, well, that's a good-looking cover. So I, I got encouraged and encouraged and encouraged and encouraged to go ahead and write the book. And finally I thought I better do it. And I do a lot of podcasts mm -hmm. um, and word is getting out slowly, but surely actually not so slowly. The story's been heard by 10 million people so far. It is a really cool story because, you know, like when you talk about the rain or, or, or the fog that you're going through and, and the droplets coming down to cleanse you, Yes, that, they were that, wonderful. That just really grabbed my attention. You know, because I've never heard any stories like yours talking about, you know, that that, that type of thing happening. But it yeah. makes sense. It does. And, you know, one of the, I get I get a lot of the same questions. Oh, and yeah, my website, temporarydeath.com. People can contact me through the website. But one of the questions I get is, um, uh, are you making this up? Mm -hmm. And that cracks me up because I'm a writer. I've read every NDE book. You name a book, I've read it. If I was going to make this up, I'd do something far more traditional than a white room with droplets. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could do a lot better. Um, my experience felt very unique. And then secondly, the other thing I get is, are you in it for the money? I'm like, anybody who asks that has never been a writer. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and the other I, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you should sue those two hospitals and the doctors and everybody involved. You could own those hospitals for what they did to you. I don't need a hospital. And secondly, uh, the fact is nobody started their day saying, let's kill this author lady. They did right. their best. They made right. mistakes. You know, and, and by the way, the hospital that made this mistake, they called me doing a customer survey <laughs> shortly after my uh, experience. And I said, Oh, what do I think of the hospital? You know, other than the fact that you killed me dead, it was fine. And they actually took it seriously and they amended their policy for biopsies. If you have, and, and I found this out because a friend of mine had a lung biopsy, which is very different from, you know, the cervical thing. Mm -hmm. Any kind of biopsy performed at this hospital, 
they sit you down in a chair for three hours and you are observed before you're allowed to leave their building. So they did take it seriously. They really did, <laughs> to their credit. So I don't, I don't believe in suing. I think lawsuits are declaring war on somebody. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want that. I just want peace. Just peace. Understood. Now, when you had your experience, were you able to see your own body lying on the bed like a lot of people do? Or, or like you say, were you just yanked, out, you know, yanked over there? I was floating away in the blackness. And so, no, I, it's called, I heard somebody call it the womb of creation. Okay. I did not see my body. And I consider that a mercy because my friend reported after, I mean, he got shooed out. You know, they come flying in with a crash cart. Right. And he got shooed out of the room. And after they're um, doing that, he said that door to your room opened three or four times, and they emerged each time carrying armfuls of linen soaked in blood. Uh-huh. And what had happened, they had stuffed me like a Christmas goose, and when they pulled the gauze out, it had not stopped the bleeding. It had just stopped the mess. Uh-huh. So I wouldn't want to see that. I don't need no, to see that. And then I was just thinking, when you talk about the cord that that shot you like the arrow, Sylvia Brown um, talks about our connection to the other side, where we each have a a cord that's like six feet long that -hmm. connects us over there. So when we have out-of-body experiences and stuff, that's how we get back into our bodies. I know, and that's the thing. I've read about that. I know about the cord, but this was... This was from the crown of my head to the bottom of my feet. It was not like an umbilicus that I was attached to. So that was pretty weird. Again, this was, you know, even when they were loading me in the ambulance to whisk me away, mm-hmm. which it was really funny, you know, because I could tell, even though I'm in a compromised state, I can tell nobody wants me around them right now. <laughs> they want me out of here. Um, I One of my very first thoughts, you know, back in the body, one of my very first thoughts was, um, uh, that was not like any NDE I'd ever read about. Right. In fact, it took me three years to write the book that you just flashed up. Thank you for doing that. And uh, I stopped reading all NDE accounts during that time because I didn't want anything to taint my view, my memories, my thoughts. So now that the book's done, I hope I can go back to reading NDEs. <laughs> well, you're right, though, because it's not like any other NDE you hear about. I mean, it's yeah. a really different. And then from your perspective, being a writer, I, I, I would probably be the same way because you're sitting there taking notes on everything as you're going, no matter what, even if it's been <laughs> notes, you know, you're watching everything. And I've never heard of that, you know, the, the white room with, 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 you know, with the droplets coming down. I mean, that's just really, really cool. Well, you know, one of the cool things about that website and reading people's emails, I'm not able to respond to all the emails, which I'm sad about, you know, because I love hearing. I, I love hearing from people. I really sure. do. But I've probably gotten a half dozen emails from people who say I had an NDE and I was also taken to a white room. Really? Yes. And same thing. Some of them have droplets and some don't. Actually, it's more than a half dozen. It's probably closer to 10 people who've shared that experience about the white room. I'll have to look into more NDEs then because, yeah, the ones I've heard, you know, they're usually in the black tunnel, you know, and the lights at the end and they're heading towards there and then they hear the voice say, well, it's not your time and then they get snapped back in. Yeah. Yep. It's very different. Yeah. It's a lot. But yeah, I remember thinking, as I said, being loaded in that ambulance thing and hey, I just had an NDE. And it wasn't anything like I thought it should be. Yeah. <laughs> that is just incredible. But also having the medical confirmation that my heart really stopped was good. I like I like documentation. Right. 
which is why he probably thought you were mental because your heart had stopped. So right away yeah. we started talking about. Well, in fact, I, I had I had lunch with a pastor, you know, just to chat about this experience with him. Right. And I said, I'm so sorry, I can't find the word right now. I said, I guess I'm tired. He said, maybe it's from not having blood flow to your brain for ten minutes. Maybe right. that's why you can't remember words. But honestly, as uh, another buddy said, I love this. Actually, he's another podcaster. He said, it's not that you came back Rosemary V2. You came back as Rosemary V29. I got a serious upgrade. And he's right. I feel I feel smarter now than I did before. <laughs> and I can read. I can read again. That's great. That's fantastic. So now that you're back, you know, you, you've written your book. What's your future goals now? Meh. Wait for spring and watch the corn grow. There you go. Actually, maybe I'll go watch wildflowers grow. Watch the quails. I love the fields and stuff. Yeah, there's um, there's kind there's some nature wetlands preserves around here, natural preserves. Mm -hmm. I like to go sit in my car at those places and just watch the birds. I mean, I I just I don't know. It's pretty interesting. I just love 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 color and yeah. I love beauty. Just love it. Well, you brought good stuff back with you then. You know, that's Thank what's you. important about it. You've taken the gift and, and you've done something with the gift. A lot of people, I'm not saying a lot of people, but there are people that, that go through that and they just piddle on with their life again. You know, yes. you're not that's doing the point. that. Yeah. Yeah. You're not doing that. You know, you're. And I, I'm trying to answer emails bit by bit and I'm always revising my book. You know, mm -hmm. that's the good part, bad part about my book is available only on Kindle right now or Amazon. It's only available as an ebook, is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes at night I take it down and I work on it and I put it back up. <laughs> the worst editor is the writer that writes their own book. Yeah. <laughs> it's still so, I fiddle with that poor book constantly. Going back through going, no, I don't like this. Let's change this. So you'll be working I do. forever. I do that for, I, yeah. I mean, it was an intense thing to write. I'm like, oh, I didn't need to say that. Well, was that really the best word I could find for that? So, yeah, I'm. somebody said, will you leave that book alone? <laughs> no. <laughs> Keep fiddling. As a newspaper editor, I can tell you that, yeah, um, you get so fanatical over your own stuff. You really do. And I'm one of those people that does that. And they used to get mad at me and say, stop editing. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. You know, but it's what we do. It's what we do. Yes. Rosemary, thank you so much for telling me. No, you're your very story. welcome. It's so inspirational for people. Thank you. And and it's just, I, I can only hope that I have, I hate to say as good a time, but I can, <laughs> when it's my turn, I can only hope that it goes as as, as well as yours did that I don't end up on some heavy duty question and answer thing for things I've done, you know, <laughs> but uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on and You're I very so welcome. It. I really do. And uh, very inspirational. In fact, I'm going to get thank that you. book. I'm going to read that sucker from cover to cover. I'm telling you, because that I is hope you enjoy it. and maybe sometime in the future, we can have you back on to talk more, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just blown away. Thank you. Absolutely blown away. All right. Well, you have a good weekend. Thank Come you very on. much. Go out, go out, watch your corn and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I think we're approaching planting season. Right. I love watching the combines too. I, I, if I had you know infinite resources, well, let's just say a lot of resources. We all have infinite resources. Oh. I'd go buy a combine. There you I go. I need a combine. If anyone's listening, they want to know what I want for Christmas. I want a combine. <laughs> There is nothing wrong with going out and watching the river go by or watching, or watching, as they say, watching the corn grow. It's all good. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I know I do that myself. You know, it's just, 
as I've gotten older, I want to do it more. I don't know if it's yes. getting older or what the deal is, but I like my peace. I have my backyard set up a certain way and I'm out there watching little creatures, you know, romp through my yard and do all that stuff. And yes. I remember when we had a house up, up north on five acres, how wonderful it was to watch the quail and watch the pheasants come through and, and the oh, moose wow. would come through occasionally, you know, and, and we, 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 we could see all this just from our, our, our windows in the house and how great That's it was. Lovely. So um, I hope you have a, you know, a great spring to, to do that stuff. Thank you very much. I really do. All right. You have a good evening. Okay. And Thank I will feed you. your website and everything after this, because I, I have a reference to it. So just before I could in the show, I'll show your websites. I'll show your book, you know, where people can get it and all that stuff. Okay. I appreciate that very much. All right, Rosemary. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have a good evening. Wow. That's all I could say about that one is wow. You know, it's, it's nothing like any other NDE, NDE I've ever heard about. So that's why I wanted to share it with you guys. Monday, we're kind of shifting gears. Sam Peroni is going to be with us. He's an attorney and he's done research into the Natalie Wood case. And he says he's uncovered some new evidence that, that might change things for now, for, for how that case is going for that, you know, for Natalie Wood. So that's going to be interesting Monday. So we're going to be doing that. Um, also, 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 let me remind you about the ghost tour. There's still two spots left. Uh, you get to hang out with me and go ghost hunting and my, and, and my team, you know, and it's not like any tour you've ever been on before. This isn't a, oh yeah, there's a ghost over here. Look, look at my meter thing. This is a hands-on thing where you actually use equipment just like the paranormal investigation team does. We, we treat it just like a normal investigation. My team members show you how to use the equipment and you, you know, and we actually use some of the stuff that's on TV. That you've seen on, on TV shows. So it's a really cool event. And then once we go through the evidence, if you did get any evidence or anything like that, we give you credit for it on our website. Okay. So you'll get your name up there and everything saying that you got an EVP or you picked this up or you had some kind of something tapped you on the shoulder or something like that. But um, join us on the ghost tour. Check out CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and, and, and head over to that uh, special events page and, and, uh, Sign up. There's only two spots left. Okay. And I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. This is my Friday night, but Sunday I will be back. We're going to do our Sunday read at 6 p.m. At 6 p.m. Pacific, that is. And it's Anna Maria Manello's uh, book, The Way Through the Woods. It's a really good book, and I'm looking forward to reading it. We'll read for an hour to an hour and a half on Sunday. So we'll be doing that. And then again, Monday is 6.30 p.m., our usual time. Sam Perini is going to be with us, and we're going to be talking about Natalie Wood. And, so, and, and see you know, some of the evidence he's come up with. Uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people anyway. We want to get the word out about this team. And normally I'll say we're equal opportunity here, which we are. But uh, we want to share it, get the word out about this team. So spread. Ta tell everybody about it. Tell your mom. Tell your dog. Tell everybody. Even dogs can hit the computer button sometimes. Mine does. But anyway, um, subscribe also. You know, we, we're looking for subscribers. Always looking for subscribers. The more people, the merrier. So there's a little uh, ghost down there in the bottom right-hand corner if you're watching from YouTube and it's got a Sherlock Holmes hat and a magnifying glass. Hit that button and you can subscribe to our videos for all the upcoming stuff that we have coming. And in fact, I'm going to be doing equipment reviews starting Monday. I'm going to be working on one this weekend, the first equipment review. So uh, you can check that out as well. All right. Uh, that ticker down at the bottom. Uh, again, we are a nonprofit and everything you see here uh, comes out of my pocket, whether it's lighting mics, whatever, headphones, you know, and even the equipment for the paranormal team comes out of my pocket. 
So I want to keep the show going. I love doing this show. I love having guests like like Rose. Okay, I love doing this. I'm a journalist. This is my thing. And I want to keep the show on the air, and I do need help like, like anybody else paying the bills. And if you could help me do that a little bit, that, that I would appreciate it. Not a lot, but just a little bit. PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, how about Venmo? Venmo, just go into Venmo, type in California Haunts and whatever amount you choose to put in there. But I'd really appreciate it. You know, I really appreciate you guys listening. I get a consistent crowd every night listening, and I appreciate each and every one of you coming in here and taking time out to see the show. Anyway, I will see you on my, I, I, I will see you on Sunday. Okay. Right now I'm going to tease up her websites and her uh, book. And here we go. So website, temporarydeath.com. How did I make it crooked? By God, it's crooked. And searshomes.org. And then there's the book, Remembering the Light. And, of course, that's available on Amazon.com. Thanks, guys. I'll see you on Sunday. Have a good day.